Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Healthy vs. Toxic, the podcast where licensed mental health professionals explore what makes a relationship healthy or unhealthy or even abusive, all from a scientifically informed perspective. Well, this is Dr. Grande. Today's questions ask, what are ways that somebody can be mentally strong? What do mentally strong people do? And conversely, I've heard, how can one avoid being mentally weak? What are things that mentally weak people do? Other questions here would be, are mental strength and mental weakness real? And are they dangerous constructs? So the terms mentally strong and mentally weak are featured in various YouTube videos and in online articles, not in scholarly articles, so not in the scientific literature, but just on these different articles we see online on various websites. We also see a variety of other related terms like emotional strength and emotional weakness or emotionally healthy and emotionally unhealthy. All of these are colloquial terms and they've been in use for a while. It's really hard to know where each of these terms originated. Now, one place where the term mental strength is prominently featured would be this particular YouTube video we see of a TED Talk that has over 10 million views. And this TED Talk features a social worker named Amy Morin. In the video, she talks about some terrible losses that she endured. She lost her mother and her husband, and then later on was remarried, and then lost her husband's father. So a lot of terrible losses, a lot of distress to be sure. And in this video, she discusses ways that she coped with these losses, like challenging cognitive distortions, her process of grieving and acceptance. So essentially you see a lot of features in this video that we would see in cognitive therapy, like using or considering the cognitive triad, negative thinking about oneself, others, and the world. At the same time though, this video introduces the features of mental strength and more or less kind of lumps all of these other things into this category of mental strength. So all of these abilities, attitudes, characteristics, and ideas just get put together as mental strength. Now, this of course is just one example. As I mentioned, there are a lot of people on the internet that have used the term mental strength and other terms related to it. I've received a number of messages from clinicians and from non-professionals asking about this idea of mental strength. Is this a real thing? Many have had clients that have come into therapy and said, hey, my problem is I'm mentally weak. I want help with this. Or they might say, hey, I'm really mentally strong and I want to build on this or I want to become mentally strong. And I also have seen situations where clients come in and they don't want to face the challenges they might have, the symptoms they might have, like 
impulsivity or aggression because they feel like they're mentally strong and they shouldn't have to worry about those things. So the term mental strength kind of, I guess, takes care of these other problems. I'm not really sure what's going on there, but this is what I've seen. So this kind of highlights one of the dangers of having imprecise, undefined terms. So before I get into this area, let me cover what has been said about mental strength. What is it supposed to represent? Now, there are hundreds of items on these lists and videos and these other internet articles I've been talking about. I've just selected a few here that I think represent the general idea that's supposed to be behind mental strength. Many of these lists are configured like this. So X number of things that mentally strong people don't do. So essentially, the things that mentally weak people do. We can't have the idea of mental strength without having the idea of mental weakness. There is no concept of up if we don't have a concept of down. So here's a sample of things that mentally strong people don't do or that mentally weak people do. Kind of works out to be the same thing. Again, according to these lists we see on the internet. So I will go through these items and align each item with the correct construct. So I'll be using for part of this a personality theory called the five-factor model, right? So this takes personality and puts it into five big traits. And sometimes these are just referred to as the big five. Openness to experience, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. I remember them through the acronym OCEAN. So as I start this list, the first one here is give their power to others. So allowing other people to make decisions for them, right? Again, what mentally strong people don't do or people who are mentally weak do. This is really high agreeableness, right? This is where somebody's dependent on another person. So this is already captured in the trait agreeableness. Next one is feel sorry for themselves, ruminating on the past. This is captured with neuroticism. Next item is thinking the world owes them something, right? So if you believe that the world owes you something, that's just illogical. That's not really a mental health construct of any type. That's just not having good reasoning skills because the world doesn't owe anybody anything. Next, we see staying in a comfort zone, having a closed mind. This is actually captured with low openness to experience, trying to please people, wanting them to like you. This is normal. I see this all the time. <laughs> it's just something people do. How about wanting people to recognize them and admire them? I would say this is really the same thing. It's just normal. Now, if this becomes extreme, of course, this would be narcissism, just like two other items, being jealous and envious. Next, we see doing something without considering consequences. This is impulsivity captured on conscientiousness. We see making mistakes repeatedly. This is just normal. Again, a lot of people do this. Succumbing to fears. I find this one to be interesting because fear can keep us alive. Fear isn't necessarily a bad thing. And sometimes we do need to give in to fear. Now, if somebody excessively gives in to fear, that could be a problem. But just recognizing fear and reacting to it, I would call this normal. The next one is giving in to temptation, wanting things right now. This type of impulsivity is captured on neuroticism. So the other type of impulsivity I talked about is captured on conscientiousness. But not being able to resist temptation, that's part of neuroticism. We see giving up after failure. This is another one I find a little confusing. Sometimes failure is a signal to give up. Some endeavors should be abandoned, right? Some things are bad ideas. Now, if people give up too quickly after they fail, 
this would be captured on conscientiousness, specifically low conscientiousness. Now, how about wanting other people to fail? We see this is tied in with this idea of what mentally strong people don't do. This would be low agreeableness. Sometimes this is referred to by the term schadenfreude. This is taking joy in somebody else's failure. Now, that's kind of an accidental thing, like somebody fails and you happen to notice it and get joy. If you deliberately want other people to fail, if you wish them to fail, again, I would put that as antagonistic, low agreeableness. How about always needing company? For some people, this is normal. It's part of extroversion, particularly high extroversion. And the last one I'll cover here is when somebody's unhappy with what they have. Again, I find this to be pretty normal. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So as you can see, mental strength is not a unitary construct. It's many unrelated parts covered under the term. The parts don't cluster together. There's no reason to believe that if you see those different things together, that they point toward a singular construct. We see aspects from all five factors of personality captured under this idea of mental strength. We also see narcissism, illogical thinking, and, as I mentioned, a lot of normal behavior. So essentially, mental strength has no meaning. It's not useful. All we're doing with mental strength, really, is stigmatizing normative traits, creating a fake construct that perhaps sells books or whatever, but doesn't actually do anybody any good. If we compare this to a legitimate construct, we see the two look quite different. For example, if we look at symptoms like experiencing a trauma, then having intrusive memories, flashbacks, trouble sleeping, and being hypervigilant, this points toward a construct called post-traumatic stress disorder. It actually has a meaning. If somebody tells a mental health clinician that they have post-traumatic stress disorder, that clinician knows something about that person. It gives us guidance as to what treatment might help alleviate their symptoms. It warns us about risk factors for that person. It lets us know what to expect. We call this a prognosis. Now, in addition to a shaky definition for mental strength, we also see the so-called myths of mental strength. And I'll put a link to some of these so-called myths in the description for this video. I chose three from one of the lists I saw that I found to be particularly interesting, right? So the first so-called myth, mental strength is a fleeting pop psychology trend, right? Again, this is presented in this one online article, at least one, as being a myth. But actually, this is completely true. Mental strength is a fleeting pop psychology trend. And really, the sooner it's gone, the better off everyone will be. The second so-called myth, people are either mentally strong or mentally weak. 
Now, this one I find particularly confusing, right? So we're going to take a construct of mental strength. And of course, that means there's going to have to be a construct of mental weakness. And now say, well, people can be both at the same time. If we're doing that, we don't need the constructs to exist in the first place. If people aren't one or the other, why even propose the idea? So really, this gets back to personality theory, which has these different traits, and people can have different levels of the different traits, right? So you can be high on conscientiousness, but low on agreeableness, right? That makes a lot more sense. Why substitute in a new idea, like mental strength, when we have an established idea that already explains our observations much better? So then the last so-called myth is mental strength stigmatizes mental illness. Again, presented as a myth, but it's actually true. The idea of mental strength does stigmatize mental illness. It also stigmatizes certain personality profiles. So essentially it's saying one way of thinking is good and one way is bad, or one attitude is good and one is bad, or one personality characteristic is good and one is bad. So it's really like saying you are not mentally ill, you are mentally weak. Now, some older therapeutic modalities actually use this idea. It's largely discarded now, of course, because it's a terrible idea. This idea has already come and gone. And again, I'm glad that this is gone. How many times have I heard from people that they've been told to toughen up if they're having difficulties with emotions or feelings? Just become mentally tough. Just become mentally strong. This is a terrible message that ignores decades of scientific research. Somebody is not mentally ill because they're not strong enough. Mental illness has a genetic and environmental component, and it's exceedingly complex. It's nobody's fault. People don't choose to be mentally ill, and they're not mentally ill, again, because of some sort of weakness. I know it seems like an expedient idea, right? Just call people weak instead of mentally ill, but there's no quick fix for mental disorders. And again, it's a terribly insensitive idea. Now, I understand that mental health clinicians want to create their own style, almost like their own brand. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with blending your personality with empirically based modalities and coming up with a style that makes sense for you and for your clients. Write something different, something unique. Every counselor has their own stories that they tell and that they incorporate into treatment, techniques that they use more often than other techniques. That's perfectly normal. And I think in most instances, that's also productive. But sometimes mental health clinicians can overreach and come up with an idea that's not supported by any evidence. Perhaps they're trying to make sense of things. Perhaps they want a legacy that goes beyond a counseling style. There are a lot of reasons why people do this. But the reality is that the ticket into the game of creating constructs for use in the mental health field is earned by reading scientific literature and combining that with other knowledge and experience, then coming up with a theory and testing that theory, not simply by naming a group of unrelated traits, whatever you feel like naming it. A quick example of how to properly introduce the term into the mental health field would be maladaptive daydreaming, right? We see that the theorists that proposed this saw the same thing happening with several clients, these really elaborate, fantasy-driven daydreams. He tested it using the scientific method and published research and continues to expand on it and test it. And what he found is that it is a real thing. Maladaptive daydreaming is not a mental disorder, but it is a real construct. Many people from around the world have maladaptive daydreams. Now, if he had found that there was no support for his idea, 
he probably would have abandoned the idea. He might have thought it was just something anomalous, something he just saw with these few people, but didn't see it in the larger population. And that's how term creation is supposed to work. Now, some would argue that these undefined, ambiguous terms aren't really hurting anybody. I would, of course, disagree. But another question I would have here would be, what have these terms contributed related to knowledge creation, research, treatment protocol development? Absolutely nothing. It worries me when mental health professionals embrace these trendy terms, and I think it can do harm. And I've actually seen it do harm in my clinical experience. So back to the original questions. How can you be mentally strong? That was one of these questions. Well, you can't. Mental strength doesn't exist in any meaningful form. It's pseudoscientific nonsense. It's an undefined construct, a nebulous confluence of personality characteristics. So another question, how can I avoid being mentally weak? The good news is, of course, you can't be mentally weak either, right? So mental strength doesn't exist, again, in any meaningful way. Mental weakness doesn't exist either. Now, in terms of the specific ideas that have been grouped together under this idea of mental strength, like avoiding cognitive distortions, well, cognitive behavioral therapy could help with that. The ideas of being grateful, having gratitude, learning to accept things, therapy could help with this as well. For some of the other items, you really have to have a certain personality profile, right? So you just have to, because of genetics and experience, end up with the right profile. And personality doesn't tend to change. Now, behaviors, of course, can be changed, which again would be something that counseling could be helpful with. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Ars Longa Media. The producers for this show are Christopher Brightigan and Madison Linden. The executive producer is Dr. Patrick Beeman. For more content, please visit our website at arslanga.media. To leave feedback or suggestions, send an email to info at arslanga.media. To find more content from Dr. Grande, including a link to his YouTube channel and his other Ars Longa podcasts, visit our website at arslanga.media. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and should not be construed as medical or mental health advice. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis. Hi there, I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardnopodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard note.